This is Nicole Deffenbaugh. If you are enjoying the podcast, we invite you to tell your friends and family and like us on Facebook at Health Stories Podcast. Welcome to Health Stories, interviews inside the healthcare system. In this podcast, we invite you to hear the personal stories of clinicians, healthcare professionals, and patients as they navigate through the healthcare system. And they're here to offer you tips and insights for how you might navigate the system as well. I'm Nicole Deffenbaugh. And I am excited to be joined by Dr. Jennifer Anderson, who is a professor of communication studies. And she is going to be talking about returning to work and other policies related to maternal health. So welcome, Dr. Anderson. It's great to be here. Okay. So how much time were you given for your leave? So we have a policy at our institution where for FMLA leave, which is Family Medical Leave Act, um, which is a federally uh, guaranteed time away from work um, for um, caring for a family member or, um, you know, health emergencies and that kind of thing, um, that you are guaranteed to be able to take up to 12 weeks of unpaid leave. Uh, following one of those qualifying health events, okay? This was signed into law in 1996. So at our institution, there is a restriction on what you can do for FMLA leave, but it's only for maternity leave. That's the only place where there's a restriction. Hmm. And what that restriction is, is that if you want to use any of your sick time to cover your leave time, uh, because they don't provide paid leave, um, then you are only allowed to do that for up to six weeks after the birth of your child, eight weeks if you've had a C-section. And if you require any additional time, you must have verification from a health professional that it is necessary for you to indeed take those entire 12 weeks. And so uh, another one other complication that can come into this is that if you are a faculty member like myself and you're on a nine-month contract during the school year, that means you're technically off contract in the summer, which means that if your baby is born over the summer, technically you wouldn't need to take leave, right? Hmm. Because you're not on contract. Right. You don't need to take, for example, if you if you got the flu for two weeks in the summer, it wouldn't make any difference. You don't need to take sick leave. So you don't need to take it for uh, when your baby is born. However, on the day that your baby is born, FMLA is, um, it begins, okay? It begins the day that your baby is born. So they're counting the 12 weeks from that date, which is fine. But here's what happened to me. I fell in that strange place between the baby being born over the summer and my the start of my contract again. 
So about six weeks after my baby was born, our contract started again for the fall. So here's the thing. I didn't need to take sick leave during the first six weeks, but that's the only time you're allowed to use your own personal accumulated leave for purposes of maternity leave. So when I came back, so when the semester was beginning, I, under FMLA guidelines, I still had, right, those 12 weeks. But the difficulty was I had to essentially petition to be able to use my own earned sick leave Hmm. for those remaining six weeks of the full 12-week FMLA um, stipulation. What I was able to do was have my doctor provide a note that said, yes, indeed, this person is deserving of using the full FMLA um, time span and to be able to, that, that allowed me then to use my own uh, personally accumulated leave. The only reason I was able to do that was because I had uh, postpartum depression and because I had talked to my provider well ahead of time. In mm-hmm. fact, in my first visit with her, my first prenatal visit, I said, here's what the policy is mm-hmm. at my workplace. And it is in direct, um, it directly intersects with my health and well-being and the health and well-being of my baby. What can we do? What are you willing to do as a care provider to ensure that I'm able to do what I need to do to recuperate from um, giving birth? And in fact, I my decision about who was going to be my OBGYN was in part based on what her response was going to be to that question. Yeah. So before we get into your healthcare provider and who you chose, because I'm sure the listeners are always, I know I am, always trying to figure out best healthcare provider, what questions right. you should be asking, what are you looking for? I want to back up a little bit. Um, and, you know, how dare you not have a child, you know, during the summer, right? So I'm sure, I'm sure your institution was like, well, how could you, you know, mm-hmm. and it's, and, and I don't mean to make light of it, even though I am, but I, I have had many individuals in, uh, in academia who try to actually time it to have their child over the summer, right? And, and fearful when it happens during those nine months. Yeah. Because then they're, they're starting their new contract. The, the department they're working for has to find someone to cover them. And it, it really creates a lot of, problems and challenges for that individual who Absolutely. who I've heard many people feel bad and you know it's 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 really hard and so I'm hearing you say like you you had a little bit over the summer but then the contract started while you were still in this time mm-hmm. and so you you were given six weeks right but you mm-hmm. were advocating for more time because mm-hmm. of your your postpartum depression mm-hmm Okay. And so you were asking for the full 12 weeks of FMLA. Yeah. So I just want to back up and, and what we're talking about here. Okay. Um, and so unless you had a C-section, which would only give you an extra two weeks, it mm-hmm. would have been eight weeks, right? So mm-hmm. you used the six weeks before the contract started? Right. So I didn't need to take sick leave was the thing. Yeah. Okay. Because here's, and here's yeah. a couple of layers of different things. Yeah. One is that... In a situation where you are required to use your own accumulated sick leave, this is disproportionately negatively affecting early career people Mm, who are, in fact, the people that are typically in their childbearing years. Because here's the thing. When I had my first child, I had only been at my institution for about a year and a half. I had only accumulated three weeks of paid leave. In that instance, I did have a C-section. 
In fact, I had eclampsia to the point where I was unconscious and they did an emergency C-section. Yeah. But in that case, I was back at work 31 days later. Wow. Okay. The only reason I was able to actually take quote unquote four weeks was because thank God spring break fell during that time. And so during that week, I wasn't required to take sick leave. Mm. Is the th- like I wasn't required to report that I was gone. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and so my child was in the neonatal intensive care unit, the NICU, in a city an hour away because we live in a town small enough that we don't have a NICU in our, in our community. My husband and I only had one car. So I was kind of stranded there with, thank God, some friends from, from undergraduate, um, from our college. Um, and they would drive me to and from the hospital every day. And my son was in the hospital for 31 days. He came home on a Thursday. We were finally able to come back home to Brookings. And, uh, the very next day I was back on campus. Um, obviously I was not fully physically recovered. And here's the other issue. Someone might say, well, you could have taken the extra, you could have at least taken the extra five weeks, right? Cause I'm granted they'll, they'll definitely give you at least eight weeks or they'll give you the eight weeks if you've had a C-section. That's true. But I would have needed to take four additional weeks off with no pay. And I'm the primary wage earner in our family. Mm-hmm. And I just had a baby. Mm-hmm. Is that the time when a primary wage earner is going to feel like it's possible to take four weeks off? Um, you're losing a month of pay right. when you just had your baby in an intensive care unit, you know, and you're going to be paying thousands and thousands of dollars um, for that care. In fact, I remember getting one of the bills and uh, the helicopter flight from our town to the larger city alone was like $80,000, wow. you know, one line. I mean, obviously, we didn't have to pay that, right? Insurance covers a lot of that. And all And thank God things, you but. have insurance that covers right. that, right? Yeah. And so when you had talked about, you know, when you start off new in an organization, you know, how much time off do people usually get? A week, two weeks? The fact that you had accrued three weeks in a year is pretty astounding for, for yeah. many other people in their position. Um, you talk about how it's challenging, especially for people who are younger. So thinking about starting a new position, childbearing years, I can't help but think about other countries. You know, you look over in Europe, yeah. Scandinavian countries, they have a year off for both Absolutely. for both parents, mm-hmm. um, a year off to spend time with their child. And we're fighting for eight weeks or, or 12 weeks even. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's, 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 it's just kind of shocking, you know, what our current system is. Yeah, I mean, I was just looking at um, an article from the Washington Post. Um, This was from, oh gosh, this was just in uh, last February. Um, But they were talking about how um, a couple of things. One is, as you said, every other highly industrialized nation has paid uh, leave of some kind to some extent. Um, And in the United States, the discourse has been, well, this is an an entitlement. This is a burden on small businesses. Um, And we don't want the government and our business about this. Employers can do this. They they can figure this out. Well, you know, that that's all well and good, except that the data indicate that more than 40 percent of companies don't offer any kind of paid leave. Mm. Uh, for their employees, and these are uh, large companies, 50 uh, employees or more. Um, and even worse is that, uh, let's see, I think it was only 6% of those large employers offer full pay during maternity leave. 6%. Wow. 
of all large employers. And this was that's a figure from 2016. And in fact, that actually dropped. In 2005, it was 17%. Mm. So we're actually going the wrong way (laughs) Um, Mm. if you're an advocate for uh, paid parental leave. Um, and that it's, it's a, it's a difficult, uh, it, I, I don't know how to solve that issue, but it definitely, the, the difficulty is in part as a young employee, as a new, uh, newer person, you're in a lower power status kind of a situation. And you're finding that you are needing to advocate on behalf of yourself in maybe one of the most vulnerable times in your life. Mm. As the woman who is pregnant, you are like your body is responsible for growing another human being. And yet this is the time when you are asked to get in these very high pressure um, negotiations. So you're putting stress on your body, which we know is bad uh, for our bodies. You're trying to negotiate about something that we know just only 20 years ago, we had to put into law, you can't fire someone for having a baby, (laughs) you know? And so you know that maybe those people that are in charge of you, maybe those uh, older folks, they probably were around at a time when they had a very negative view of a woman becoming pregnant and being in the workplace, all these kinds of things. You're being asked to negotiate that with them when you're really early on in your career. And here's another twist to it, which is about, um, especially for academics or in almost any career situation, you want to know that you you want to demonstrate that you're a valuable employee, right? You're making a unique contribution to this organization. So at the same time that you're saying I'm a valuable employee making a unique contribution, so please don't fire me because I'm trying to continue on our human race. Um, you're also saying, but also, could you get someone to replace me for this time that I'm gone? That should be an easy enough thing to do, right? Why don't you have something in place for that? We don't have anything in place for someone to replace us. There is not a replacement kind of a, there's not anything for that, at least yeah. in our institution. Um, it's just sort of cobbled together. And then you become a burden on your coworkers right. because your coworkers are expected to cover the, you know, to pick up the slack, so to speak. Yeah. And so it's this, you are put in an impossible position. Um, and we have this line in our HR policy, which is human resources policy, which is, you know, here's generally the policy and then you negotiate it with your direct supervisor, which I think is meant to give a lot of freedom and flexibility. And in some ways that's really, really good, right? Different departments have different needs and those kind of things. But then what that ends up doing is it puts the onus back on the woman who again is in this really vulnerable position. If there's any time that you don't want to put your job in in jeopardy, it's when you're about to have a child. Um, to negotiate all these things with their direct supervisor. And even if your supervisor is on board with it, you are also then impacting your coworkers and they may or may not have received very good or clear communication about all these issues. Um, I did a study on this actually that appeared in the journal of human lactation, where we talked about how important it is to have communication about these policies, because here's the thing, just having a policy in place, even if you have a really nice one, isn't enough to ensure a, that it's being implemented fairly and consistently. Or B, that everyone involved with it, not just the person taking leave, but the other people whose schedules and responsibilities and things are are affected, is aware of how this policy uh, works. That article in the Journal of Human Lactation was was specifically about breastfeeding support policies in workplaces, Mm -hmm. which are tied directly to, you know, childbearing and those kind of things. Because with the Affordable Care Act from 2010, there is a provision in there that's uh, about support for breastfeeding mothers, which says all... Um, employers that employ 50 people or more are um, expected to provide adequate time and space for a mother to express breast milk at work for up to a year after her child is born. Um, And that space should be private and not a bathroom. 
Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> um, and so I've done some work on, you know, how we accommodate those kind of things, because that's also part of that returning to work process. It's not like, it's, it's not like a different type of um, illness where you're maybe pretty much recovered and it may not affect your day-to-day work um, situation. Maybe you have follow-up physical therapy appointments, follow-up um, doctor's appointments, but it's not something where every day, multiple times a day, you're still in that zone. And that's absolutely what's happening if you are trying to breastfeed, which incidentally is the optimal way to provide food for your child. I mean, it is optimal nutrition. It's something that every medical professional advocates for. And this is going to circle back around to the medical professionals and writing notes and all those kind of things, which is we were hoping that, uh, so myself and a colleague of mine had babies within a couple weeks of each other. Our due dates were actually like three days apart. And um, we both went to the same OBGYN she, her leave stuff kicked in earlier than mine did. And so her initially, she was trying to get that extension on the FMLA leave, the use of personal sick leave time, um, to say just, you know, we need to establish breastfeeding. Like this is necessary to be able to, to be able to feed on demand and to be able to, um, work for all those things. That was the initial note that the doctor wrote and our human resources people kicked that back and said, that's not sufficient. That's not a medically necessary reason for taking leave. And it really bothered us because we were like, well, maybe check with the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and also the American Academy of Pediatrics and also the World Health Organization. They would all say that it's definitely medically necessary, but, you know, what do they Right. And and that's an interesting point because as people are listening, even if it's not for maternal health, just the idea of FMLA, right, Mm -hmm. is scary. Because you need it at a time that you're vulnerable to be able to ask to get off of work, whether it's for, you know, maternity leave or for other health issues. Thinking Mm -hmm. about the quote-unquote burden and not even thinking of it as a burden, right? But but we often think of it as burdening our fellow colleagues and our department we work in. And, and, and how to have those conversations to legitimize your health condition in order to get the FMLA. Because I have heard of and I'm aware of friends and, and former colleagues who didn't necessarily get the medical leave, even though I had, they had a legitimate condition. Mm-hmm. So tell me the rest of the story about how you were able to get FMLA, FMLA even though it was initially rejected by your HR department. Um, ultimately, so what my colleague did was, again, it was like, oh, thank goodness I had this terrible health situation happening to me because then I was able to get the leave that I feel like I should have been granted regardless. Um, in her case, she had she had, had a, quite a few difficulties with breastfeeding with her first child, and so that had left some um, difficulties there. And so some she was able to do something about that, that there was like physical issues. Oh, the idea of um, to, to prevent things like mastitis, which is an infection in the breast um, that's related to breastfeeding. You know, thank goodness I had postpartum depression. Um, because then that was considered a legitimate enough, um, thing you know, what was really unfortunate about this is that, you know, we, so the problem is you've got to be able to plan that you're taking this leave. And so the thing is we had planned that that was what was going to happen. We set all these different things in motion, but then when that initial like medical letter got kicked back, it was like, Oh, Oh my gosh. Like two weeks before we're meant to come back for the semester, we had assumed that we weren't going to be coming back until, you know, 
a part of the way through. And so it was this moment of, you know, in that limbo, should I be getting ready for classes? Should I not? Like, what right. is, is happening? I, I'm not sure what's going to be going on. And I have to, my, you know, my sense is from talking with other folks, when they're on leave for other medical conditions, they're just like, I'm just out. You know, I, I'm in the hospital. It's, it's going to be what it's going to be. And people can just deal with it when I get back. But that is not the attitude that there seems to be generally in the American workplace with maternity leave. Mm-hmm. We're, uh, my current uh, supervisor did a much better job of it this time than the previous supervisor um, with my first pregnancy in the sense that during my first pregnancy, still getting emails, still being asked to grade things. It was not like a true leave. Oh, yeah. Wow. Um, and sometimes the idea is like, oh, we'll be really flexible. We'll just let you teach online classes that semester. Oh, and then wow. that way you don't really, really need to leave. Right. But wow. there's still, but like there's no mechanism yeah. in place to replace. You it's a perception. It's all this like, yeah. But it's flexible. Yeah, the perception of what of the severity of your condition, and I, you know, leave is leave, right. uh, and yet if we perceive that someone doesn't need to be on quote unquote full leave or partial leave, although I am aware of some individuals that, for example, had um, severe migraines, so they were on yes. intermittent FMLA, which meant that on days that they had horrible migraines, they they wouldn't come in. And then they could come in the next day if they were feeling better, so that intermittent. Mm -hmm. But when you're on FMLA, you're on FMLA, you're out, Mm -hmm. you know. And so I'm hearing you say that you had um, people who were really trying to push that and say, well, yeah, you can still do your work. Right. Um, But, yeah, I think it was something about, you know, preventing mastitis, establishing breastfeeding, those kind of things. So she she got another note, a new note from that same doctor. Oh, okay. But this time it was, now it was deemed by this person in in human resources as, okay, well, this is medically necessary, which that leads into a whole other situation of like, what, you know, the medical professional initially felt in their medical authority and expertise that this was a medically necessary reason for leave, but a human resources professional with no medical training is the ultimate arbiter of whether or not your you know, health experience is enough to justify you using your own accumulated sick leave. Right. I mean, that boggles my mind. Yeah, yeah. Who, who, who is deciding this? And it's not somebody with a medical background. So the medical professional helped the individual with the first letter that was sent yeah. to HR. They rejected it. Then yeah. that individual went back to their yeah, provider to and said, provider I need, I need different language. Mm-hmm. I need different language. I need more specific language. Here's the language to use. Mm-hmm. And did the medical professional, do you know that they're like, oh, okay, I know what they're looking for or I know what I need to say? What do, um, in other words, what should we be saying to our physicians in order to get the leave that we, we need? And again, for our own time that we've accrued, right? Our yeah, own leave. I, yeah. You know, I think that's a really difficult question because my guess is it might vary by institution. It's possible that if we'd had a different person reviewing that letter initially, they might have granted. Oh, you yeah, know, that's I, a good point. I don't know. Yeah. Because that's, that's what's really difficult, right, is that obviously, and I understand it from the human resources perspective, you can't write a policy that's like, in every possible health circumstance, here's mm-hmm. the exact wording to right. use. Because I also think that in some ways they're kind of, it's sort of like this little test, Right. That like if the medical professional actually deems it truly an issue, they will have written that language in the first place. You know what I'm saying? Um, It's it's weird, though. For me, it feels so condescending. It's like having to get a sick note for missing class. You know what I'm saying? It 
is to me, it's just this, what it's communicating. And I don't think they mean for it to communicate this, but to me, what it's communicating is initially we don't believe you. We think you're trying to scam the system to get time off, you know? Um, when in fact, that's just, of course, not what's happening. And I understand there probably are cases where that happens and they need to have documentation and all those things. Um, so it's, it's tough for me to say, I don't, I don't know what I do think is it's, you know, the more medical jargon they could probably put in there, the better, mm-hmm. the more it can sound like this is a diagnosis of something, mm-hmm. you know, for this in terms of, um, leave after, um, childbirth. Um, you know, I feel extremely, uh, concerned for people who are taking FMLA for after adoption because I have no idea uh, how they would ever yeah. get the full 12 weeks. I, I don't think it would be possible right? because I think it would be almost impossible to see a medical care provider. You know, maybe there would be a mental health uh, kind of a perspective, but unless there's something wrong. Right. You would have to show, for example, that the child you just adopted had various needs Right. right, medical needs that required right. you to, yeah, interesting. Yeah, um, but then here's the other thing. They were like, well, here's here's the thing is if you then, I was like, well, what if, well, could I just use um, sick time and say, well, I'm caring for my sick child, right? And they were like, no, because then if you use that for long enough, that would trigger, it would essentially trigger a, a, a separate and unique FMLA um, request, essentially. And oh, you can only take request. one yeah. per 12 months, yeah. right? They're like, because then at that point, you're not taking FMLA for maternity leave for yourself. You're taking it under a different, I mean, and I don't know yeah. if this, is a yeah. whole, this could be just our yeah. institution's interpretation of it. Yeah. But, know, it, but this is the yeah. intersection of healthcare, policy, workplace, and your personal health. Yeah. And it becomes incumbent upon the pregnant or recently uh, delivered mother to understand all of that policy at a federal level and their institutional level and be able to talk to their healthcare provider about that and negotiate the insurance system and all of those kinds of things. It just, it, it baffles my mind. I do think the thing that I think was really good that we both did myself and my colleague who were seeing the same um, healthcare provider was to talk to her really early on Mm, in the prenatal stage to say, this is what our employer is. And we asked our HR people, what would we need to have? to be able to get to this point? Is it enough to just have a quick note from a doctor that says, yes, I think they need to have that extra leave. They said, no, they need to have, you need to have a specific, you know, health concern or reason. And we said, okay, you know, and and we communicated that to the doctor and she said, I feel comfortable writing such a letter, you know, um, on your behalf. I'm happy to do that. You know, those kind of things that we needed, you know, we knew we needed to have specific written documentation. You had mentioned earlier about finding a physician. So I want to go Mm -hmm. back to that. And I said we were going to circle back to it. How do you identify a physician? Um, How did you identify a physician to work with? Good question. We, you know, (laughs) in our community, there are only three people who, at the time, there were only three physicians that deliver babies in our town. So it's a pretty pretty quick uh, decision tree there. Um, Two are female and one is male. I knew I didn't, I prefer a female OBGYN. Um, and the person who had delivered my first baby had since moved on, uh, somewhere else. And so then her patients essentially got moved to this new person. Um, and so that was who I had been seeing, uh, for my OB or for my gynecological exam. So I went to her initially and my decision about 
my thought was, I'll stay with her if she would agree to um, do write this kind of letter and, and that kind of thing for me. I had a sense that she probably would because the way that she communicated uh, in previous like appointments and things indicated to me that she is very much about shared decision making, mm. trusting the patient to know their own body and to understand be able to advocate for their own choices and that kind of stuff. So early on in our prenatal visits and things I talked to her or before we, I got pregnant, I was asking her things about, I'd had a C-section. And so I said, how do you feel about VBAC, which is vaginal birth after cesarean? Um, you know, how do you feel about me not wanting to have any kind of medication of any, of any sort? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you feel about fetal all these different things that some, for some, um, OBGYNs can seem sort of non-mainstream or out of, you know, not typical practice and that kind of stuff. Um, she was very open to those things. And her, her point was, you know, I'm open to it, but the most important thing is what you want to decide to do you as the patient. That's the most important thing. You know, I appreciate that you're checking with me about it or whatever, but you know, she's like, I, I am on board with any decision that you make as long as it is not obviously like threatening your health. You know, if, if there's a, if there's an emergency, we will intervene, but absolutely it's up to you so that kind of communication between the physician and myself i think um indicated to me that probably she would be on board with um supporting me in a decision to take i wanted to say extended leave it's not extended i wanted to take the amount of leave that i am federally entitled to under law (laughs) you know i just I just feel like that's a, a really important point to, to stress is that it, as the person re- requesting this leave, you're made to feel as though you are requesting special treatment. And in fact, that type of language sometimes has come up with our human resources folks. Well, I just want to make sure you're not trying to get the entire semester off, mm. you know, that kind of language. Um, and, and comparing it to their experience maybe, you know, decades ago and saying, well, you know, I, we didn't even have this. And so you should just be lucky. You should just be thankful that you even have these kind of protections. And, you know, while I, I appreciate them, my point was, yeah, I, I, I do. I absolutely a hundred percent appreciate that. But at the same time, we are just nowhere close as a nation to what other comparable nations are, are offering. Um, and also that in this particular situation, it feels like it's, um, like it's an unnecessary restriction on my rights, essentially that like I, there are so many, there's so much red tape about how I can use my own leave. Right. You know? And they sure make it challenging for you to do that. Right. So, right. Um, so I want to go back to the conversations with your doctor. I'm hearing you say that you were really talking about her sort of proactively in advance. Um, and it sounds like that might be helpful for listeners, you know, if you're considering having a child or you're early on in your pregnancy, that you should be having these conversations now um, yes. with your um, OB gynecologist about you know, not only their philosophy and practices with giving birth, but the post-birth that we sort of take, I think we take for granted as a society. I mean, if you think about it, I I always go back when I talk about um, birth, I say to most people, look at what's shown on TV. You know, the woman goes into labor, five minutes later, she gives birth to an eight-month-old child, you know, (laughs) that has no 
you know, substance, blood, you know, you don't see the afterbirth. There's no delivering of the placenta rarely unless it's a, a medical show, right? right? And even then they kind of literally clean it up in many respects. And then it's done. And then they're happy in their home. And But we don't see the after part. You know, Absolutely. we don't see the challenges that they face trying to, to breastfeed at that, if, you know, which, which happens for many women. Um, we don't see the months that they are caring for their child, trying to figure out schedules and what to feed and how many children have colic and have food allergies. I mean, there's so much. We, we just don't see it. And so it's sort of like the birth is the event. But what happens after the birth is not really discussed. And, and, and really, that's what I'm hearing you say is we don't have conversations about, like you said, returning to work, but what happens after birth and the policies surrounding those events. And it's often too late until we, we look into yeah. it and we're denied. Yeah. Or we're, we're not having conversations. I, I was thinking about the whole, you were talking about the complexities of what happens after, you know, birth, the postnatal period. And there are some folks who call it the fourth trimester. Mm. And the idea behind that is your body and your baby's body are still so intimately connected. I mean, especially if you're breastfeeding, your body is still, because your baby, if you're exclusively breastfeeding, you are still the only thing that's keeping that baby alive. (laughs) It's still 100% your body as the mother who's recovering from one of the more intense physical things that can ever happen to a person. Um, and so there is all this, it's still this very fluid, you know, you, this very connected, um, experience and, uh, yeah, just that, that, that fourth trimester that it is still a very sort of all encompassing care moment, um, or season in a person's life. Um, and the fact that we don't, you know, recognize and respect that in this country is, is just really problematic to me. So one of the interesting things about that whole, the whole fourth trimester thing and what mom is still dealing with is that in our healthcare system, sometimes it feels like as soon as the baby is born, all attention goes to the baby. Mom's done. She's done being pregnant. We don't need to concern ourselves with her anymore. And one of the things that that gets linked to then is really high maternal mortality rates in the United States. We have an extremely high maternal mortality rate in the U.S. in comparison to other industrialized, uh, you know, nations. And unfortunately, the maternal mortality rate is even higher among people of color. I think it's the highest among um, African-American women. And one of the reasons that people have identified for this is that there is a lack of medical attention to the mother after childbirth. Um, You know, the baby, you bring them in a couple days after birth to see how breastfeeding establishment is going. Um, You bring them in a couple weeks and then a month and then six weeks and all these kinds of things. There's lots of appointments for the baby. Um, Mom doesn't need to be seen for six weeks. She'll be fine. We're just going to come back and check. And you know what? A lot of that, the, uh, a big part of that, uh, appointment is, have you healed up enough? Is it okay for you to have sex again? Is a big part of that, uh, you know, because that's the most important. Um, anyway, being sarcastic, but here's the, here's the issue is that things like eclampsia, which I'm intimately familiar with because I experienced can you, it. Can you describe? Show up after delivery. Can you describe that really fatal. quickly? Yeah. What, what is eclampsia? Oh, sorry. Eclampsia is extremely high blood pressure. Uh, during pregnancy, and typically it is cured, so to speak, with the delivery of the baby. Typically it occurs before um, the baby is delivered. But the thing is, you can develop it, and there's another thing called HELP, 
syndrome, and I don't remember what the that acronym stands for, but it's very similar, and I think it has something to do with your kidney. But here's the thing about both eclampsia and health. You can die from that. The mother can die. Like, your kidneys fail, and you, like, you know. Um, it's really serious. You can have hemorrhaging after delivery. I mean, there are all kinds of complications. Those are the physical ones. For In my case, it was mental health issues. It was postpartum depression. It was not feeling like I was able to bond with my child or get out of bed. You know, I mean, it, feeling completely disconnected and numb um, to the world. Those are not small issues. Those aren't things that go away. You know, that's not the baby blues. That's not just you're tired because you gave birth and it's like running a marathon and you need to recuperate. That That is something completely different. Um, and it is a danger to your mental health, your stability. It's also a danger to your child, the child you just have. If you have other children at home, it's problematic for that too. Uh, and if you have a spouse, probably not great for that relationship either. There are tremendous issues that can occur for the mother after she's given birth, but there is very little, if any, attention paid to that in a formal sort of scheduled way of saying, we need to have a checkup, because here's the thing, when you go in for the checkup with your baby, maybe the thought is, if you haven't gone through this, oh, they're probably checking you out too, right, mom? Not necessarily. Yeah. If you're going to a pediatrician, that is not your doctor. That's your baby's doctor. Right. So you who's know? checking um, mama? The six-week checkup yeah. is back with your OBGYN, not your primary care physician. Right. And so if you haven't disclosed ahead of time that you have mental health uh, needs or issues, and maybe you didn't even know that you did, because maybe you've never experienced them until now. And now you're in this moment of it's, a, it's supposed to be a quick checkup to make sure physically everything's healed and you're fine. Maybe not even every OBGYN would ask you if those yeah. issues are going on. They're supposed to, but... And I can't help but notice the timeline, right? So you have a child, mm -hmm. and it's six weeks later mm -hmm. that you go to the doctor. Isn't your FMLA six weeks? Probably. And so, yep. Yeah. And so let's say on that sixth week, that's when they discover because you're having postpartum depression or you've got some other physical yep. issues, your FMLA is done. Yep. You know, so any issues or difficulties physically, mentally... Um, mm -hmm. you know, that, that have uh, come up during those six weeks haven't been addressed and now your FMLA is over and now you, you have other things you need to address and you have no more FMLA. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so and interesting. I, you know, a mother could, you know, the counter argument to this would maybe be, you know, mom can make a new appointment with a, with a doctor. It's not like you can only go back when they say that you can. Mm -hmm. um, you could, you know, if you're feeling like you need to go back, you can't. The, my counter argument to that is, Manyfold. One is uh, that's an extra appointment that insurance doesn't necessarily cover as part of your whole like maternity care package. Right. You know, so there's an additional cost associated with that. Secondly, you know, you're caring for a pretty needy infant, so there is a feeling that there's, you know, you don't want to leave the house. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like either you would need to bring your baby with you, which is fine, um, or you would need to have somebody take care of them, which is difficult to to manage. But the other part of it is. A lot of women are maybe not aware of the line between just being tired and kind of maybe on, in a down mood and what it really feels like to have anxiety or depression. And there's all this guilt, yeah. right? That if you're, you're not supposed to be feeling like this. And so the idea of calling up and making an appointment with this medical professional that you've maybe never talked about mental health issues with before, mm -hmm. and maybe in your state, your primary care physicians aren't even qualified to diagnose mental health issues. In our state, they are, but not every state. You might feel like, what would even be the point? And what would even be the 
solution. And I don't want to take these crazy psychotropic medications for mental uh, illness while I'm breastfeeding my baby. What's that going to do to my oh, baby? Gosh, and yeah. I don't want to be become numb because the the um, the impression that we have of drugs for mental illness is it's going to just like flatline me. And I'm not going to have the highs and lows. You know, I won't have the lows, but I also won't have the highs. And won't that impede my bonding with the baby? All You know, my point is, I don't know that a mother, a person who has just given birth, is maybe the best person to rely on to advocate for themselves to go to the doctor for an, unnes- an unnecessary or unscheduled appointment. Yep, and FMLA. That's what we need to rely on. That's, that's not a good system. And FMLA and maternity leave is a lot more than just healing physically after birth. Absolutely. That's, I think, the, the point that we're making here. The other thing that I want to mention is, you know, these are the difficulties that I experienced at a workplace that actually, that is large enough and, I guess, progressive enough to even have policies related to this and to even be considered uh, for me to be eligible for FMLA. There are a tremendous number of women who are working in positions where they are uh, either part-time or they're hourly or they're in a small enough uh, mm-hmm. organization that yeah. this doesn't apply to them, or to their organization. And so in those cases, they may not have any leave at all. And that is just awful. Is that you know, illegal? In those cases, I mean, I, I don't know what else to say about that except that that is just terrible and it needs to be fixed. And even even though, yes, I had struggles, I'm still in a very privileged position where I was even able to do these things. I have a degree in communication and so I have some training in how to advocate for myself. That's a privileged position. You know, I have a partner at home. I, you know what I'm saying? I, I, I could have gone the second time. We could have had a couple of weeks of unpaid leave and been okay. Um, and so that is another intersection that's happening here, um, is that there are many women that wouldn't, this wouldn't even be something that they even could could do, right? They can't even advocate for these things. And that's why, I mean, this is, not only is there an intersection with your local policy and your care provider and you, and your institution and your coworkers and all those kind of things, but it's also about federal policy, and it's about being um, an active citizen. You know, I uh, I remember reading some things about being like um, an engaged health citizen. The idea that our health, the things that impact our health, um, are beyond sometimes just that that care provider interaction, our physical and mental health, and how we care for that. But it's also all these policies that affect um, the various aspects of that. There is. You know, people are introducing bills in Congress all the time. They always get shot down, but they're always introducing, like, the Family Act and all these different things that would guarantee paid leave to every mother because, you know, for me personally, I don't think that uh, a mother with a full-time job is more deserving of appropriate leave after her after giving birth than a woman that does not have that type of job. That's outrageous to me and awful. It's unethical. It's an injustice. <laughs> and I just it's it's hard for me to understand how um, we can have a lot of national discourse about the extent to which we care about children and family values and still be so reluctant to grant uh, paid leave uh, it, to mothers. I, it's 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 unfathomable to me. Is it illegal not to offer FMLA to women after birth? Um, I believe that it only applies to uh, people in larger companies, but maybe not. Oh, okay. Because I'm thinking women who are part-time, who are just under full-time status, who don't get right. 
health coverage who don't, you know, may not be able to apply. And I've, I've sadly heard of women who have taken four weeks or less of leave after having a, a child. Yeah. It says, okay, so I'm looking at the actual uh, law, job protected leave for specific family and medical reasons with continuation of group health insurance coverage under the same terms. So I'm wondering if it's only in cases where you have that um, yeah. continuation of, or where you have health insurance through your employer. Right. Um, but that, I don't know. That, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so so helping to kind of recap for our audience, because we're actually getting close to our time here, um, I'm hearing a couple of things. Um, one, find out your policies. Talk to HR. What is the language in the policy? What do right. you need from HR? It might even behoove our audience to look at this ahead of time. You know, even if yes. you don't have a chronic condition, even if you're not going on maternity leave, Family medical leave is also for, not just for yourself, but for your family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so it, it might not be a bad idea to look at the policies for your company and check out what those are now mm-hmm. uh, and talk to HR. What would I need? What would, it, what would the letter need to say? Who needs right. to sign this paperwork? Um, two is talking to your physician mm-hmm. early on, you know. So if you do have a chronic condition, I you know, I'm right. thinking... Um, or if you're pregnant, which again, under medicine is considered a condition, right? An illness yeah. or a condition, right? Um, it's good to talk to your physician, find out what their philosophies are, um, but also find out what they're, what they have done and haven't mm-hmm. done in regards to FMLA and, and letters. And the third, and I appreciate you saying this, um, is being an active citizen, you know, and mm-hmm. thinking about our federal, state, and local health policies and, mm-hmm. You know, talking about it is one thing, but uh, we have elections coming up soon yeah. and thinking about um, who's running and what their policies are. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm sorry, what their issues are that they're running for and mm-hmm. looking at local, state and federal policies on, on health, you know, yeah. and what needs to be changed and who you might be writing a, a letter to. You know, this is mm-hmm. this is a podca- podcast on health stories, but people's health experiences are greatly influenced by the culture and the politics uh, mm-hmm. of our surrounding communities, state, and uh, the entire the entire um, U.S. So this is a time to look into that and uh, really encourage people to advocate not just for themselves but also yes. on behalf of all of us. Um, so we're we're near the end here. I I like to ask if you have any additional thoughts or comments that you'd like to offer our listeners. The only other thing that just came to my mind is that one thing that our employer does offer, and this is probably common across other um, employers' insurance plans, is that you can get uh, like um, not partial paid leave uh, following your pregnancy if you have the part of that insurance where it's um, it's for temporary disability. <laughs> so for some reason. Okay. Pregnancy and childbirth is classified under many insurance plans as a temporary disability. disability. Now, here's the, here's the issue with this. You would have had to have signed up for this during your annual enrollment period prior oh, to becoming pregnant. Right, right. How would you know? <laughs> right. If you're in your childbearing years and you're planning to have children, that might be something to look into is, does my insurance policy have something for um, temporary disability that would pay at least partial uh, salary during a time when I would take leave that could help me maybe extend 
leave, if you need to use your own sick time or, you know, that kind of thing. And I'm not sure how many weeks that, you know, I'm sure that varies by insurance policy, but something to look into ahead of time might be the temporary disability, you know, element. It's an add on usually for insurance. Um, but to maybe sign up for something like that. Yeah. And you'd have to pay for that extra coverage, right? So you'd have to find during the window when you'd sign up for it. So you have to get it during the window or when you initially sign up, you know, and that might not even be a bad thing anyway, when you're, when you're um, getting a new position to consider signing up for it, but recognizing you have to pay extra for that. I'm sorry. And you were going to say something. But it's so, I mean, yes, you're paying extra, but the payoff, if you end up using it is really excellent. You know, I mean, it's, it's certainly, it's, yeah. yeah, it would be worth it. And maternity is a temporary disability, so um, <laughs> yeah, right. The language we use, but uh, that allows it to get covered, right? Absolutely. So, so recognizing what's the language that's used in in healthcare in order to get um, covered the things that need to get covered, but then that also complicates um, our discourse around that. The other thing I would say is that the way I learned about that was through another coworker who is currently pregnant, and that makes me think mm-hmm. about. One of the other things that I would recommend people do in a workplace, particularly if you're new to it, is to get in touch with other people who maybe have gone through a similar health experience at this institution and ask them about how they handled it, because they might know different things or different questions to ask. You know, the folks who are working on the policy and they're only going to answer the questions that you ask. And so, and you may not know all of the right questions to ask if it's your first time um, doing it. And they might be new to the position or there might be other ways to work around. You know what I'm saying? In most organizations, there's what's written down formally, but then there's also all these other little informal tweaks and it's about who you know and different things like that. So my advice would be to talk to other people who have gone through that situation. They also then can become a natural support network for you when you're managing those issues that, you know, because here's the thing, health is complex and unpredictable. And so things might happen that even though, you know, our best laid plans, we've talked about all these things ahead of time, we know all the policies, and then out of nowhere something else happens. It's good to have made those connections before that unpredictable thing happens, that there's somebody who's not your boss, and who's not human resources that you can talk to and ask those kind of questions, maybe a little bit more confidentially. You can be a little more honest with them about all the different things that you're thinking about with this. So that then when you do go to those folks who are the ultimate decision makers, you feel like you have the whole, you know, you feel put together professional, you know, what questions to ask. Um, and, and you're able to do that successfully. Those would be my closing thoughts. Great way to end. That that's really good advice, and and we've talked on other podcasts too. Find your support network mm-hmm. uh, and people to talk to. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Anderson, for joining us today. Really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, for our listeners, as always, please like us on Facebook. Join our podcast so that you can get them every week. Then when they come out, you can find us at nicoledefenba.com/blog. And uh, also on castos.com. And we are now on Twitter. So feel free to tweet us as well. We'd love to hear from you, your thoughts, comments, and always inviting individuals onto our podcast as interviewees. Thank you once again for listening to this week's podcast. I'm Nicole Deffenbaugh with Health Stories.